Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome. You've got the Does anyone remember this kid's show? It was called Candle Cove, and I must have been like six or seven. I've never found reference to it anywhere, so I think it was on a local station around 71, 72. I don't remember which station, but I do remember it was on at a weird time, like 4 p.m. I grew up outside of Ashland and was nine years old in 72. It seems really familiar to me. Candle Cove. Was it about pirates? I remember a pirate marionette at the mouth of a cave talking to a little girl. Yes! Okay, I'm not crazy. I remember Pirate Percy. I was always kind of scared of him. He looked like he was built from parts of other dolls. Real low budget. His head was like an old porcelain baby doll head. It looked like an antique that didn't belong on the body. I don't remember what station this was. I don't think it was WTSF though. Sorry to resurrect this old thread, but I know exactly what show you mean. I think Candle Co. ran for only a couple months in 71, not 72. I was 12, and I watched it a few times with my brother. It was Channel 58, whatever station that was. My mom would let me switch to it after the news. Let me see what I remember. It took place in Candle Cove, and it was about a little girl who imagined herself to be friends with pirates. The pirate ship was called the Laughing Stock, and Pirate Percy wasn't a very good pirate because he got scared too easily. And there was calliope music constantly playing. Don't remember the girl's name. Janice or Jade or something? I think it was Janice. Ah, thank you. Memories flooded back when you mentioned the laughing stock in Channel 58. I remember the bow of the ship was a wooden smiling face with the lower jaw submerged. It looked like it was swallowing the sea and it had that awful Edwin voice and laugh. I especially remember how jarring it was when they switched from the wooden plastic model to that foam puppet version of the head that talked. (laughs) I remember now too. Do you remember this part? You have to go inside. Yes, I remember. That's what the ship always told Percy when there was a spooky place that he had to go in, like a cave or a dark room where the treasure was, and the camera would push in on Laughingstock's face with each pause. You have to go inside. With his two eyes askew and that flopping foam jaw and the fishing line that opened and closed it, it's just... It looked so cheap and awful. You guys remember the villain? He had a face that was just a handlebar mustache above really tall, narrow teeth. I honestly, honestly thought the villain was Pirate Percy. I was about five when the show was on. Nightmare fuel. That wasn't the villain, the puppet with the mustache. That was the villain's sidekick, Horace Horrible. He had a monocle too, but it was on top of the mustache. I used to think that meant he had only one eye. But yeah, the villain was another marionette. Oh, the skin taker. 
I can't believe what they let us watch back then. The Skin Taker. What kind of a kid's show were we watching? I seriously could not look at the screen when the Skin Taker showed up. He just descended out of nowhere on his strings, just a dirty skeleton wearing that brown top hat and cape, and his glass eyes that were too big for his skull. Wasn't his top hat and cloak all sewn up crazily? Was that supposed to be children's skin? Yeah, I think so. Remember his mouth didn't open and close, his jaw just slid back and forth? I remember the little girl said, why does your mouth move like that? And the skin taker didn't look at the girl, but at the camera and said, to grind your skin. I am so relieved that other people remember this terrible show. I used to have this awful memory, a bad dream that I had where the opening jingle ended, the show faded in from black and all the characters were there but the camera was just cutting to each of their faces and they were just screaming and the puppets and the marionettes were flailing and just all screaming and screaming. The girl was just moaning and crying like she had been through hours of this. I woke up so many times from that nightmare. I used to wet the bed when I had it. I don't think that was a dream. I remember that. I remember that was an episode. No, 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 not possible. There was no plot or anything. I mean, like, literally just standing in place, crying and screaming for the whole show. Maybe I'm manufacturing the memory because you said that, but I swear to God, I remember seeing what you described. They just screamed. Yes, the little girl, Janice. I remember seeing her shake and the skin taker screaming through his gnashing teeth, his jaw careening so wildly I thought it would come off its wire hinges. I turned it off and it was the last time I watched. I ran to tell my brother, and we didn't have the courage to turn it back on. I visited my mom today at the nursing home. I asked her about when I was little, in the early 70s, and if she remembered a kid's show, Candle Cove. She said she was surprised I could remember that, and I asked why. And she said, Because I used to think it was so strange that you said, I'm going to go watch Candle Cove now, Mom. And then you would tune the TV to static and just watch dead air for 30 minutes. You had a big imagination with your little pirate show. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter. And I'm Mason Amadeus. In today's episode, the folklore of analog horror and the gothic. This episode has no content warnings. This is the Digital Folklore Podcast. Let me tell you a story. Monday, April 10th, 2023. Far enough along to where the shine of a new year starts to dull. All the little pieces of protective plastic film pulled from the shiny patches of new beginnings. Year-end planner books bathing in the fluorescence of the clearance aisle. The time of year when spring stands in the doorway, lazily smoking a clove cigarette while winter searches for its lost coat. Far enough into 2023 that I find myself restless. In my haste to clear the house of evidence, I feel lately as though I'm living on a set piece. The floors are too clear. The tables no longer resemble castles at war. And frankly, I'm still not used to sleeping without the relaxing sounds of 
Digby chewing through my audio cables. So, I decide to make a mess. I don't get more than 45 minutes into disorganizing my home when what slips from a box and lands heavy at my feet? A VHS tape. I bend down to pick it up, blow off a layer of dust so thick it might have been a carpet sample. Candle Cove, it reads, in colorful block letters, Candle Cove. I blink twice. This can't be real. Candle Cove can't be taped, it's just static. And regardless, Candle Cove is just a creepy pasta anyway. Where did I get this? The black plastic case feels dry and fragile in my hands, like a takeout sushi container forgotten in the sands of the Sierra Nevada. Hey listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited, it's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies. Allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claret and Clear. Use as directed. The next three hours are a blur as I tore through my house like a bull in a candy store. I could have sworn I had one somewhere. I can't bear to throw away anything that works or anything that doesn't. I have a therapist. That's not the point. The point is, I find myself standing in the center of the studio, VHS tape stuffed impossibly and precariously into the top of my back pocket no closer to a VCR than when I started. At a time like this, there's only one place to go. Perry's house. Having never been here before, I was expecting some kind of elaborate security system, but I wasn't expecting a mansion. After buzzing in at the gate and making my way up into the ornately gilded entrance hall, I see Perry poke his head from a distant doorway. Hello. He's making tea. 16 kinds of tea 
in 16 small glass jars. He told me what he was doing, but I don't remember. But when I asked him about his mansion, he only replied, eh, Airbnb. After a bit of chit chat, I pull out the tape. It was just sort of in my stuff. I have no idea where I got it. Well, there's no way that it's real, right? I mean, this has to be a prank or some kind of novelty thing. What's on it? I don't know. I don't have a VCR. You don't have a VCR. I know, I know. Somehow I don't. Well, neither do I. Well. There's, um. Yeah, but. I mean, after last time. Yeah, but we have to know what's on the tape. And I don't. Nah, I can't think of anywhere else that would have one. Yeah, me neither. Let's go see Todd. Go see Todd. I mean, we can take the van. You got to see the paint job. It did come out pretty awesome. I can't pretend to understand Perry or how he comes up with all of his schemes, but he really follows through. It did come out awesome. The van had shed its former dirty maroon paint in favor of a slick sea foam green. Emblazoned on all sides with a smattering of various emojis and social media logos, a big white digital folklore painted on the back right below a YouTube play button. By any reasonable sense of taste, it shouldn't work. But the design swings all the way past cringe and right back around to cool. We piled in and rumbled off down Perry's checkerboard cobblestone driveway and out towards the freeway. So, I've got a thought. Let's make this our analog horror episode. Like like right now? Yeah, I mean, you did literally find this VHS of Candle Cove this morning, and I do have somebody in mind that we could interview, so okay. just do it on the drive. And before I knew it, Perry had punched a few buttons on the steering column, microphones extended out from the headrests, and the infotainment display had started up a call. Hi, I'm Diane Rogers. I am a senior lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK, and I'm one of the co-founders of the Centre for Contemporary Legend, which is a research group interested in folklore and contemporary legend. My own particular area of interest is folklore as communicators in the media, particularly film and television. The theme of this is analog horror. And by that, what we're trying to refer to is there, there are certain horror movies, certain tropes that when you look at it, one of the indicative pieces within that is old technology that just the sake of it being there, VHS tapes or CRT monitors or whatever other artifacts kind of bring out the creepiness in some way. And I was wondering if um, somebody with the you know background that you have, if you've got insight into what makes us feel that creep factor whenever we look at these older artifacts of technology? Well, just kind of thinking out loud about it, because I love that stuff. I love the physical media of it. And I think that is a big part of it, is that older media, physical media, we can have a physical connection to it, but it also deteriorates. It can also deteriorate in the same way that our bodies can deteriorate. Video wears out or, you know has scratches on it and has the possibility of a, a level of transience. It can be there, but it's only fuzzy or you can only quite partially make out what is there. Some of the research that I've done is very directly related to the pre-digital age. So pr before 
the internet and digital media came about and thinking about why media from that time period is so creepy and haunting to people or why it's been so impactful. And one of the things that that, uh, I've talked about is the idea of fuzzy memory because you maybe saw something or heard some a radio play or saw a TV show or a film that you couldn't then instantly watch again. There's there's no ability to immediately rewind and rewatch and catch up. So you're stuck with the initial impressions, however strong or blurry, and they might change over time. And it's kind of your your fuzzy memory of it. And it maybe it gets scarier because you can only remember bits and pieces of it you can't fill in the gaps and you just remember some horrifying image or or a feeling or something that made you feel in a certain way and, and that only comes with not not just physical media but older media because it was a time period in which it was broadcast and then it was gone or you know the video cost a hundred pounds because videos were really expensive or it was only on at the cinema and then you couldn't see it again for three years till it was on TV. So yeah, I think there are lots of different elements there going on. I wonder if anything, uh, like to, relating to the, the fact that it's physical media, I wonder if the reason that what seems like a lot of analog horror, at least what is popular currently, has a very late 80s, early 90s aesthetic. And I wonder if that's just because that was sort of the last of the era of physical media in a lot of ways. Because something that... I, I think is interesting is that it's popular even among people who at this point didn't really have a childhood where that was prominent. Like it makes sense specifically like for me when I remember from early childhood was watching VHS tapes. So there's a big part that feels like it might just be nostalgia, but it doesn't seem to be because it's still weirdly popular even amongst people who are younger. I talk to my students about this because I teach alternative media uh, a module and as part of that, I talk to them about music and film and all sorts of different formats. And there's, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but there's been a, a revival of vinyl. Yeah. Buying records has come around again. And cassette tapes, cassette tapes were never that good to start with. I mean, I, I like the plastic chunkiness of them. Like you say, I think it's interesting. There is a kind of nostalgia for... This is like what I would call hauntological. There's a, a strand of, of study called hauntology that's almost um, a nostalgia for lost futures is the best way to, to describe it. We were promised all this stuff that was going to happen and it re- never really came about. So that there is a lot of media being made that is being described as hauntological. There's a, a record label that makes new music by young people that sounds like it could have come from the 70s or 80s. It's almost like we were promised all these flying cars and, you know, utopian futures, but it never really came about. So there's, I think there is some, like you say, the idea of nostalgia for something that never really existed or something that never really paid off. And I think physical media is a connection to that or, or, trying to recapture something. I am fascinated by hauntology. I've never heard of that. I've not heard that phrase or that term either. That is so cool. I've written a, a fair bit about that. It, it's, it's really interesting. Mark Fisher wrote a book called Ghosts of My Life. And that's a really interesting book. And he, he kind of was one of the proponents. He's one of the most interesting writers on hauntology. Sadly, he's not around anymore, but people who write about hauntology and talk about it 
often reference his work as he described. And he talks about the concepts of what is weird and eerie and a lot of unsettling things in not just media, but generally kind of ties into notions of the uncanny, things being present where they shouldn't be or things being absent where you'd expect to find something. And it's like that the hauntological notion of it is being haunted by a presence of something, by a presence of a past that never really came to fruition. It's quite complicated. I'm struggling to explain it in a a succinct way. It sounds super relevant, though, because there's a lot there. As we were kind of brainstorming about our theories on why some of this seems to have so much um, traction and why people do feel this weird spooky effect with looking at old things. There is kind of an uncanniness. There is a degradation of memory. As as we look with our rose-colored glasses and then we actually look at the technology that was there that was supposed to, you know, the future is in technicolor. And then you look at it and it's old, nasty, grainy. You can see the pixels and everything when you look at it. The colors that we thought were so bright and everything are now faded and kind of look off and yellow. And even when they're presented in their original color scheme, they don't look like the way that we represent color today. So we remember these things very fondly. And then you look back on it and you're like, that doesn't live up to my expectation. And so then you're trying to reconcile with all of that in some way, and it, it becomes a little bit creepy. This seems to speak to that persistence of it, too, as to why it has a sticking power. Um, because even for people who didn't grow up in that time, it's still a notable part because it was the last of the physical media era. And also, it's still recent enough that people are caring about it, I guess. It's like it's in the popular memory. There's something in the in the general consciousness. I, I like to use the word weird with a Y, because uh, I think there's a, there's a crossover. Because people talk about folk horror and hauntology have... Uh, as separate things, but I think they've actually got a lot in common because I think not everything that I might think of as folk horror is necessarily horrific. It might just be a bit unsettling or unnerving and it's and you're not quite sure why. And I think it's usually because it's got some kind of hauntological aspect to it. It's unsettling and it's haunted by the spectre of memory of a different time or a different era or notions that ancient paganism or ancient religion, you know, which isn't really ancient paganism isn't really ancient. It's the way we think of it. It was invented in the 1930s, for example. Loads and loads of things tied up, but I like I like to use the word weird because I think it has a crossover between um, what is folk horror, what is hauntological and dystopian kind of narratives as well. So I think all of those kind of cross over in this, oh, I'm not sure why this is creeping me out, but it is creeping me out. Uh, and I'd say, well, that that's weird TV or weird film. When you think about this from a horror trope perspective, and you're looking at old technology, one of the things that people typically find is like an, an old reel that has, a, you know, a singular announcer that's supposed to be this trusted authority or shadowy figure that is then presenting the, you know, quote unquote, truth for that, that segment. And I'm wondering if there's something about, you know, the medium that that gets presented on or the fact that back then, you know, there was a time when it was a person in a suit and tie presenting the quote unquote truth um, that carries an interesting psychological weight if there's some baggage that we're trying to address with ourselves there. 
I think it's both of those things. But I think what you're saying about the, I think the medium itself is significant because it exists physically. There's a piece of celluloid that that's got this story on it. It's not just something ephemeral that is there and gone and lost in a Twitter thread or something like that. I think things seem more real if you can hold it in your hands and thereby kind of more plausible. You can buy into it more because it physically exists. Even if you've not got it in your own personal hands, the fact that you know it exists in some real way, that maybe that adds to the believability or the plausibility of it. Just a quick aside that what you made me think of is I'm sure you've seen the trend where people will print out a meme and then staple it to a telephone pole and take a picture and share it. And it seems so much more like it might be a real thing just because in the physical world. And as as you were talking through that, one of the things I was thinking is like, if you pop in a VHS cassette and then now you watch this person, it feels a little bit like you're resurrecting something. There's a little ritual with it. There's steps that you put in and it's taking something that is ephemeral and then bringing it into the real world. There's a little bit of uh, ostensive property with that, too. Yeah, like you're literally bringing something to life or raising a... It's like um, getting an old family photo album out of a box or blowing the dust off it or there's something leafing through those pages feels very different and much more ritualistic, like you say, than flicking through some photos on your phone. Again, it's that feels in in opposition. It's It feels so ephemeral and they're there and gone. But if it's in a physical form and you can handle it or push the tape in the machine and listen to it. Because it's not just about the physicality of it. It's all of the senses, isn't it? Because it make, the sound it makes, the smell it has, all of that stuff is a sensory memory that you're building. So maybe that's, that's interesting, actually, because that's a lot to do with how memory works, isn't it? About if you have a, a sound or a smell, you're much more likely to remember something vividly than just one sense. So our interaction with the media, uh, physical medium as well, is a big part of it. We wrapped our call with Diane a few minutes before we arrived at Todd's pawn shop, a place that neither Perry nor myself had even spoken of, let alone visited, since our last unsettling encounter with the owner. The bright light of beckoning bargains breaks through the busted glass in the boarded windows, the door hangs crooked on its frame, Even outside, this place exudes an energy of sinister familiarity, reluctant nostalgia. It's like the faint smell of cigarettes in your grandma's 1994 Pontiac Grand Am every time you turn the heat on. Walking in is like remembering something that you tried desperately to forget, and yet the siren song of knowing draws you closer. So this is just a quick in and out. We're here for one thing and that's it. In and out, just a VCR. Yeah, and no browsing. Yes, no browsing. Not even a quick check. Do not get sucked I, in. Okay, yes, I get it. Not, I, we're going in one thing and we're coming out. Okay. We push through the half-busted crash bar door, walking with purpose, like a couple of hard-boiled detectives hot on the heels of a killer case. Rusting, mismatched shelves from a dozen closed-down businesses hawking scratch-and-dent wares with their bright color-coded price tags waving in our wake. Near one of the far corners, we find our treasure. 
nestled between nine generations of video game consoles stacked in descending order of care and a crate of wireless keyboards without receivers. A small, gray, Panasonic PVC 1320, a 13-inch CRT TV with a built-in VCR. Hey, this looks like it'll do. Oh, bingo. Nice. What if it doesn't work? Todd tests everything before he puts it out. I want you to say that again and tell me why I'm not reassured. Okay, yeah, fair point. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, I guess. Grab it. Let's get out of here. We're doing so good. Man, man, I forgot how heavy these things are. You'll get over it. Let's just scoot on out of here. Yeah, yeah. Cradling the TV like an unruly, dusty baby, we start to head towards the front desk. The home stretch. I can see the cashier ahead, over the top of a mountainous rat king pile of extension cords. It's not Todd. It's some gangly teenager working the desk today. I'm just a few feet away when I hear Perry calling out to me from a distance. Mason, hey, it's the people from Carter Hall again. I stop in my tracks. We were so close. The television grows even heavier in my arms as I turn to face him. Perry beckons me over to join in. So I set the TV down next to a candelabra made of discarded baby doll heads and sidle over. Perry makes the introductions, and before I can protest, I'm pulled in too. I'm Dr. Brittany Warman. And I'm Dr. Sarah Clito. And together we are the Carter Hall School of Folklore and the fantastic and online school dedicated to bringing folklore outside of the academy. We earned our PhDs in folklore from The Ohio State University in 2018. And we earned our master's in folklore from George Mason University in 2012 somehow. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, So I know one of the things you two have focused on and studied is the gothic And I was wondering, before we get too deep in anything, how would you describe the Gothic to someone who is not familiar with it? Because from my understanding, it's something that's both very nebulous and also very concrete. So what's the best way to sort of envision the vibe of what Gothic is? Well, to me, the word I keep coming back to to describe it is haunted. It's haunted by the past. It's haunted by family secrets you don't want to come out. It's that feeling of being haunted. So anything that you associate with that feeling gives a general impression of what the Gothic is. There's an amazing writer named Angela Carter who wrote a bunch of Gothic fairy tales that we adore. They're so good. But she describes the Gothic as dread glamour. And I always thought that was really good. Like it gives you like that vibe in two words. So go, Angela. (laughs) Dread glamour. (laughs) I really like that. Is that good? That's awesome. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. (laughs) One of the episodes that we are planning is the concept of analog horror. It's, you know, why when we look at old VHS tapes and CRT monitors and this, you know, kind of older technology, why do we feel this sense of dread and intrigue? And as I was reading some of your descriptions about crumbling castles and things that are a little bit tattered that were once really clean, representing gothic it started to click in is is like is the nostalgia that comes with a show like stranger things is that kind of a modern gothic take oh that's a really good question 
I do think it's playing with similar ideas at the very least. And I think you could make a good case that something like Stranger Things is at least gothic adjacent, if not like full-on gothic itself. Where I would start with this, Brittany might dive in somewhere else, but there's a scholar of the gothic named Fred Bodding, and his explanation for the gothic is basically that it is the past coming back to haunt the present. So if you think of it in terms of old technology that is sort of like crumbling, that, you know, we maybe don't have ways to access it quite so readily anymore, you can definitely think of that as a newer vehicle for potentially exploring the Gothic. But where we diverge from this, take it, Brittany. So where we diverge from this is that we would go a little more specific and say that it's not just... um any past. It's the folkloric past more often than not. It's these ideas of superstition and uh, monsters and things like that that come back and break through our modern world, our civilized world, our world of rational thinking and remain even though we tell ourselves that we've moved on beyond that. And also, I mean, to bring it back around to technology, I mean, you can see why old technology is so often like a vehicle for gothic or for, you know, sometimes horror that kind of splits from gothic a little bit. But because it's stuff that we are theoretically past, right? But that used to be so integral, that used to be something we interacted with all the time, but that now is inaccessible and that creates the space for it to potentially become gothic. So much of the the folklore that exists is a reaction to some inflection point within culture, some some low grade thing that's irritating society in some way. What are some of the low grade things that would kind of create uh, gothic anything? Well, to me, the gothic is always rooted in anxiety, and sometimes those anxieties are small things, but sometimes they're really big things too that are really difficult to talk about. It's the kind of things that, you know, you you don't want to bring up at the dinner table, like, you know, questions about sexuality, about colonialism, about racism and bigotry in all kinds of senses. And for the Gothic, it seems like they use small things to talk about big things. It's easier for us. I, I think this applies to most of humanity. It's easier for us to tell a story about something to, than to confront it directly. And the Gothic is all about doing that. And folklore is often all about doing that, finding ways to engage with the world in a you know, personal and artistic way with a lot of other people. <laughs> I am um, halfway through rereading The Castle of Otranto right now, which I haven't read in years. And that is arguably the first Gothic novel or at least first supernatural Gothic novel. And the family that it's about is just... They're absolutely bananas. Like they're they're terrible. (laughs) It's all completely ridiculous and over the top. But, you know, it lets you explore like, okay, what happens if the family structure is destabilized? Like this is a completely melodramatic way of thinking about, in a way, sort of exploding all of the different institutions that we expect to hold society together. And I do want to note at this point that it has been frequently argued that the Gothic is ultimately a pretty conservative mode because at the end of the story, all of these things, all of these questions are usually resolved without anything changing. Like the status quo is reinstated. 
But there's this period of extreme instability in the middle where all of it is questioned that I find very interesting. And in a lot of more contemporary Gothic literature, these institutions explode and then stay exploded. There is no re-institution of the status quo in the same way. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> does, does that come back to maybe in some of this earlier literature, the person writing it had a sense of helplessness or hopelessness of we can do all of this stuff, but it's all going to stay the same no matter what. So they saw that as realism? Or what do you think is the heart of that? I think it varies depending on the person who told it. You know, like I'm thinking of Mary Shelley, you know, who wrote Frankenstein and was incredibly radical for the time period. So I don't think that, you know, when she was writing Frankenstein, she was thinking, well, everything's always going to stay the same. Nothing will ever change. But I also don't know that like Horace Walpole of like the the murderous supernatural falling helmet was really envisioning a lot of social change himself. So, you know, it's, when you talked about Mary Shelley, I think that that is a good one to bring up because Mary Shelley, at the end of Frankenstein, there is a certain amount of restoration to the status quo because Frankenstein and the monster go off into the snowy tundra and are never seen again. But there's also an open-endedness there. She really doesn't shut it down completely. Having not read any of these recently, I'm wondering if there's almost then, if it's not a resolute kind of, oh my God, it's going to stay the same no matter what, then I'm wondering if it's wanting to unsettle the reader and say, imagine a world where all this stayed the same. Wouldn't that be horrible? That's what we think. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why when we come across a lot of the scholarly arguments that say, no, like the Gothic is still conservative. I'm like, did you read that? Like, yeah. There's so much possibility, so much instability in here. And in a lot of them, it feels sort of nightmarish at the end for nothing to change, but also sometimes nightmarish for things to change. It's just, but it's all about this unsettledness that never really completely dispels. I was wondering, and it, it might be a little bit of a basic thing, but I was wondering for the sake of like introducing the concept of Gothic, which is something I don't know much about. My initial reaction, I imagine a lot of people's would be that it's tied to that very specific aesthetic and architecture was like a medieval time in Europe. How, how much of Gothic is like married to an aesthetic and an architecture versus the other hallmarks of it as we've been talking about? The Gothic is very difficult to define super precisely because there's just a lot of differing opinions about what makes something gothic. But what it ultimately comes down to is sort of a bunch of things put together and reaching a critical mass where it tips over into gothic. So if you see things like decaying castles and deep, dark forests, family secrets, curses, all that kind of stuff. Threat of the supernatural. Yes, of course. Once you reach that critical mass, the story really just tips over in there. And that's pretty much the only thing people can agree on when they're trying to define what the Gothic is. We do like Fred Botting's idea that it's the past coming back to haunt the present. But again, we would take it even more specific and say that it's often related to folklore when that past comes back. The folkloric past coming back to haunt the present. And to complicate things further, everything that Brittany mentioned in that list, like any one of those things or a couple of those things could show up in something else, you know, an, a story. Yeah. And it wouldn't necessarily be gothic at all. Like not all stories that happen to have a castle in them are gothic. 
not even every vampire story is necessarily gothic. It really is that sheer accumulation of stuff that makes it gothic, which sounds ridiculous. But another key thing about the gothic is that it is a mode of excess. Like there's too much. There are too many feelings. There's too much stuff. There's too much melodrama. It's completely over the top. And that excessiveness is part of what makes it gothic. When we think about some of the social issues that may make one of these genres spring up or one of these folkloric expression styles uh, spring up, do you see those types of tipping points as being critical or is that kind of a red herring? When I think about when the Gothic has really been popular, there were things that sort of directly precipitated it. So when it was first getting going at the end of the 1700s, there was romanticism, which was direct uh, reaction to uh, in the Enlightenment. There was a resurgence of it at the end of the 1800s. It was a reaction to a lot of different things, but a lot of political things like the rapidly declining power of the British Empire was a big, big reason why people felt scared, why people felt like they were on the precipice of change and wanting to and maybe wanting to cling to those things and then realizing some of the things from the past are pretty scary when you look at them. And now I think that there are things in place that could signify some sort of gothic resurgence, but it would be a very different form. Yeah, the gothic often resurges in times of instability or times of rupture. So I would not be surprised if we saw some kind of technological gothic resurgence. I mean, who knows? We could be in the middle of one right now. <laughs> right. It also, where we are right now, I think we're almost to the place where things are starting to get a little bit scary. I'm thinking of things like self-driving cars. I'm thinking of AI art. <laughs> that's, a, that's a perfect example. And what does that mean for society? What does it mean for art? And these are the kinds of questions that the Gothic is really good to try to come up with some sort of answer with. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
We part ways and exchange information, heads swimming with new ideas and all urgency forgotten. Perry and I chat casually as we go retrieve the TV and head towards the counter. It takes me until the very last second to notice that the gangly teenager is gone and in their place. Hey, hey, well, well, how are you two doing? We're both too stunned to speak for a moment. Perry recovers first. Uh, good, good, just um, lost track of time. Yeah, that's easy to do here. I see Todd sneering knowingly. Nice find. This TV used to be mine. Kept in my bedroom. Oh, good. I used to watch David Letterman and then Johnny Casson every night. Dave on Channel 2, Johnny on Channel 5. Yeah, that's right. This thing got two channels. Yeah, wow. It's wicked cool. Um, Does the VCR still work good? Oh, better than good. Honestly, I didn't want to get rid of it. Uh, all right. I prefer watching stuff on VHS, but, you know, times change. Okay. It's just so much more tangible. What's our total? Oh, oh yeah. Um, that was two hundred bucks. Two hundred. Two hundred bucks. Hey, you know what? The lowest I can do is a hundred ninety. Any idea how rare these things are? You're not going to Walmart and get one of these. They can't be that rare. Oh yeah. Well, there's only one of this one, and that's what I call sentimental value. Uh, take it. Pleasure doing business. Of course. Perry slapped the money down on the desk and we hightailed it from the shop. Neither of us spoke for the entire ride home. The discomfort of talking with Todd and the growing dread of what we might discover on the tape hung in the air between us like a fart that just won't go away. We rolled up just outside my place, lugged our new TV into the studio, and I endured a slew of disparaging remarks about the state of my previously clean house while I searched for an extension cord of the proper length. And then we sat down, neither of us certain of what would come next. The Candle Cove VHS, resting in limbo just over the threshold of the VCR door, the TV staring menacingly back at us like it was ready to bite down and snap the cassette in half. We should probably... Yeah, but what if... What if what? I don't, I don't know, this is going to sound stupid, but I'm a little bit wigged out, okay? Like, the Candle Cove VHS in itself is weird, but playing it on what used to be Todd's personal TV just makes me feel like something scary is going to happen. It's just a TV. It's just a VHS. Candle Cove is just a creepypasta, and Todd is just a creepy person. Yeah. Neither of us is going to be happy not knowing, so let's just do it. It's been a while since I've played a VHS, but I swear I don't remember it taking that much force to push in. I jumped when the automated jaws grabbed hold of the tape and sucked it inwards and then latched it down to play. We sat back. I grabbed a nearby mic stand and held it at my side like a club, just in case I needed to smash the TV in self-defense. The moment lasted for eternity as the screen slowly jittered to life. A black bar wiped vertically like a rag clearing a table. The auto tracking indicator painted itself on the screen 
And then the picture stabilized on a scene that looked like a small recording studio. And then... You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. Analog horror stories take place in the age of VCRs and VHS tapes, but they're made today. And they're looking at the past through the lens of the present. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Wait. What? Eric. Eric Malinsky. He hosts this show called Imaginary Worlds. Mm -hmm. I reached out to him ages ago about doing a collaboration on analog horror. So this must be that. Okay, but like, why is it on a VHS and just mysteriously inside of my house? Well, I gave him your address for mailing. He must have thought that this would be a funny way to do the whole thing. Yeah, maybe next time tell me about the collaborations that you plan with He never confirmed. Have... I think that this whole thing is just fun for him. I dropped the mic stand. I should have suspected this was somehow one of Perry's schemes and we sat back to watch the rest. One of the people that I talked to was Alex Hera. Uh, he made a documentary called The History of Analog Horror. And Alex is in his 20s. And um, some of the filmmakers he talked to are in their 20s. And I asked him, why are you guys so into analog horror? I would say there's three main reasons that people my age or younger are interested in analog horror. The first of which is obviously the fact that there's a very low barrier of entry for creators. So just off the bat, the idea of being able to just make a video really simply, you don't need actors, you just need like, you know, some pictures and some text. And theoretically, you could make an analog horror video. That appeals to a lot of people. And he says the second reason why a lot of young people do this is like basically the reason why anybody would make something and put it on the internet. A lot of people are doing it uh, just hoping to get fame or popularity, but there are also a lot of young people who are doing it just because they don't have a lot of resources and they want to tell a story, they want to make videos, uh, they want to make an alternate reality game. That's actually a key part of these web series, you know, like there's a puzzle to solve. You know, the videos are dropped online with just enough breadcrumbs for you to follow and figure out like, what's the grand conspiracy behind these videos that are supposedly found after being lost for decades. The third main reason is that there is a sense of mystery about the analog technology that exists in analog horror because they didn't grow up in it or they only very vaguely remember it when they were very young. And obviously it's from a completely different time period, a completely different world. Literally just the infrastructure of, you know, towns and cities, the idea that you couldn't instantly communicate with anyone you wanted to, you couldn't instantly find out where someone was. Analog horror really blew up, really blew up on the internet in the last maybe like three years. And he thinks that it's not a coincidence that that's, you know, it was over the course of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, you had a lot of young people that are home. And so they're online all the time. They've got time to kill. So they're making consuming analog horror. But he thinks there's like thematic elements of the pandemic in this stuff. There is something about the fact that analog horror blew up in the pandemic that makes me think that that whole era of the media and the news and the government messaging and all that. There's something about that, you know, obviously that made people distrust the media. There was so much disillusionment with the media that obviously still remains today. Disillusionment with the media, with the government, and analog horror reflects that significantly. Uh, a lot of those videos are about government organizations messaging and saying, you know, untruthful things that can't be trusted, that will harm you if you trust them. 
Well, that was cool. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to try to look at something like analog horror and pull it apart to see its component parts. Yeah. I think it's it's interesting to me that it's still pervasive, even for people that didn't grow up with the technology. I mean, they, they look at things like a VHS tape or a CRT monitor, and it immediately brings all this weird, nostalgia-ridden something to the way that they perceive it. Yeah, it's like a nostalgia they didn't really get to have, which is interesting. It's almost like trying to describe a, a feeling. There's a specific feeling that comes from that generation of technology. Yeah, it's it's weird. And I I do wonder, like, in a hundred years or a thousand years even, like, what if anything takes its place? Yeah, I mean, it's like Diane said. We decompressed for a while before parting ways. The vet called me later that night. Digby's procedure was a success. I can't wait to get the little guy home. I still felt unsettled by that little TV, though. Like a curse had descended upon it the moment it began to play that tape. I found myself filled with dread every time I looked at it. And I worried that I'd never escape the fate it had in store for me. Or at least, I didn't want it in my house anymore but I wanted to make sure I kept a record of the tape. So before bed, I went down and hooked up the video and audio output from the TV into my computer. The plan was to let the tape play out overnight, silently being recorded, and I could chuck the whole thing in a dumpster the next day. I rewound the VHS, double-checked it would be recorded, and then when I went to hit play, it was only static. Thanks for listening to Digital Folklore. You should join our Discord. There's a link in the show notes. It's totally free, but there are special channels for Patreon supporters, which you can become too at patreon.com slash digital folklore. A special thanks this episode to Diane Rogers, Sarah Cleto, Brittany Warman, and Eric Malinsky for lending us their time and knowledge. Thank you to our voice actors in the opening story, Brooke Jeanette, Daniel Spencer, and Aaron King. They're all podcasters too, and you can check out the show notes for links to their work. And thank you to Rich Daigle, the sinister, mellifluous voice of Todd. Digital Folklore is distributed by Realm and created by Perry Carpenter and me, Mason Amadeus. If you like what we do, consider supporting us on Patreon. Or if you really, really like what we do, you could reach out about sponsoring an episode or a whole season of Digital Folklore. Everything you need is in the show notes. We'll see you next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. 
That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.